hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Issues Magazine Shop. Much like this podcast, we exist to celebrate the people and projects keeping print alive. We sell a mix of independent and commercial titles from around the world, shipping globally from our retail shop in Toronto, Canada. Visit us online at issuesmagshop.com. When I started out, you turned to magazines and papers and books for the photos. That was it. And it's just completely different. You know, people have seen hundreds and hundreds of pictures every day. So where is our place in that? This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm George Jandron. I'm Patrick Mitchell. Kathy Ryan's career journey began in Bound Brook, New Jersey, at St. Joseph's Catholic School. Her third grade teacher, Sister Mary William, had a thing for great works of art. And, as it turns out, so did Ryan. I got it. I so got it. Looking at the pictures and just understanding, I don't know, it was like, wow, I get it. That understanding of the power of the visual led Ryan to focus on art in college, on lithography and printmaking. But the solemn life of an artist wasn't for her. She hated being alone all day. She loved working with people. She wanted to be part of a team. Kathy Ryan was made for magazines. After starting her career at Sigma, the renowned French photo agency, Ryan was hired away by the New York Times Magazine in 1985. She had found her team. In her tenure at the Times, she has collaborated with all the bold-faced names. Jake Silverstein and Gail Bickler, the current editor and creative director, as well as Adam Moss, Rem Duplessis, Janet Froelich, Peter Howe, Diana LaGuardia, Gerald Maserati, Ken Kendrick, and Jack Rosenthal. And between and among them, they've won all the awards and created one of the world's truly great magazines. Recently, Ryan's work at the Times took a new turn. Inspired by her collaborations with the most gifted photographers in the business, Ryan started making a few pictures of her own. She had always been mesmerized by the way the light hit the Renzo Piano-designed Times headquarters. But on this particularly sunny morning, Ryan pulled out her phone and snapped a picture. Then she took another, and another. She started seeing pictures everywhere. Portraits, abstracts, whatever caught her eye. Encouraged by friends and colleagues, she posted them on Instagram with the hashtag OfficeRomance. After a career of looking at pictures, she is now making them. And that led to her glorious book, Office Romance, published by Aperture in 2014. We talked to Ryan about her passion for the art of work, about the thrill of discovering incredible talent in unexpected places, and about the responsibility that comes with sending photojournalists into harm's way. I'm going to dive right into here with a question that I shared with you before, and that is that the vast majority of people involved in, certainly in print media, never really understand or understood what a photo editor really does. And I think people really don't understand, especially in this day and age, what the job really entails. And so I'm wondering if you were standing up in front of, let's say, a class of young would-be photojournalists and videographers, how would you answer the question, what is the director of photography for the New York Times Magazine? What do you do? Well, I work with a team of photo editors. We're a small team, and the job is basically to conceptualize and figure out the photographic approach for each of the stories coming up. So we do, you know, coming up with ideas and assigning photography to accompany text-driven pieces. And that's the majority of what we do at the New York Times Magazine. But we also initiate ideas for photo essays where it comes from either a photo editor or a photographer. And we pitch those ideas in the same way a story entered it. So... The photo editor's job is basically the director of photography. My job is to work with that team, look at the stories that are coming up, and as fast as they're going on to the schedule or being assigned to writers or being assigned to photographers, we make it happen. So in some cases, that might mean it's a writer-driven piece. And the main thing I do is, with the team, figure out what's the best approach. Do we want to approach it in a documentary fashion? send a photojournalist? Do we want to approach it as studio portraiture? 
Is this a story that calls for conceptual photography where we come up with an idea and create it in studio, whether that's still life or something where we build sets? There's all different ways to commission the photography. So first thing is meeting with Gail Bickler, the creative director, Jake Silverstein, the editor-in-chief, and some of the other top editors, depending on the story. And we have a weekly art direction meeting where we'll meet, talk about what's coming up. Jake will give us an idea and what this photography or the art, sometimes it's illustration, needs to accomplish. So most of the time, we're making the photography happen at the same time the piece is being written. Sometimes we have the manuscript first, but we're often simultaneously figuring out what we'll do for the photography. We cover all sorts of subjects, more so than almost any magazine. Our range is very broad, from the big international reported pieces to the way we live now, features to the cultural stories. So we kind of cover it all, which of course makes it the most exciting job on the planet because one minute we're producing a big shindig in Hollywood, and the next minute we're doing something far more serious, figuring out how to cover the invasion in Ukraine. Then, of course, the most important decision you make is who's the best photographer for the assignment. And then figuring out the cover is its own thing. So a lot of my time and Gail's and Jake's and our teams, it's spent figuring out what we should try to do for the cover. And right away, is it photography? Is it illustration? Is it photo illustration? Do we think this is a story that we want to go documentary? So that gives you some idea. The other day I was talking with Jake and he said something I thought really made sense. He said, basically, we do three things. One is artistic, obviously. One is the expression of ideas. And then the third is deadlines. <laughs> it's a weekly. And I cannot stress enough that it's always at an accelerated pace. So just about everything we do is full throttle, meaning as fast as we're assigning one thing we're thinking about the next one. We're trying to get it lined up. I'm curious. You talked about the cover. You have one luxury that the rest of us in the mainstream magazine industry have never had, which is you don't have to worry about newsstand sales. And I think that's really liberating. And I'm curious about your response to that. So how do you think about the cover? What's the role of the cover? within the Sunday paper? I think the role of the cover is to stand out. So when somebody opens up their Sunday paper, their bundle, you want the cover to call attention to the stories inside, to the cover story. So I think of it first and foremost to get people into the magazine. We're very aware of how fortunate we are that we don't have to compete on the newsstand. That has always been a gift because it just means there is a freedom. The decisions can be made in terms of what's the best artistic approach. And Jake is a big believer in that. What does that mean? Maybe it means we can do something a little bit more obscure, less direct. Sometimes we have a chance to play around with maybe more poetic imagery that wouldn't stand out on a newsstand, but it's a really thoughtful, beautiful picture. Many of the conversations that we have between me and Gail and our design and photo teams have a lot to do with that. What works as a cover image is often different. But then again, our covers vary widely. There's not a look to them because it one week, it's our great performers portfolio. We do once a year, pegged to the Oscars. And then another week, it might be pure documentary photojournalism. Right. But we have a tremendous variety, and we try to shift according to the needs of a particular story. I'm assuming that you must be willing to take certain kinds of risks with your cover. Can you think of a recent one where you and your team felt Okay, this is a risk, but this is a risk worth taking. Yes, and you have to take risks. Otherwise, you won't do something memorable, right? So often it's when you take a risk that you make something that's memorable. I would say this year, when we commissioned Marilyn Minter to do our cover story on sex after 70, there was a risk in that. And... It was exciting. It was thrilling. Who knows what's going to happen? Anytime you assign an artist like Marilyn Minter, who spends her time making her own artwork, marching to her own beat, coming up with her own thing she wants to do. It's not, it's a little bit of a different outing than when you're working with a magazine photographer who completely understands the rhythms, but it was so a risk worth taking. Why? The subject itself is interesting. I think the headline was the joys and challenges of sex after 70. And 
she's a terrific artist who it's her territory. For years, she's been making work early on. Feminists thought it was pornographic, but she always was believed in a very liberated, free-spirited approach to sexuality and her artwork. And I knew already from having worked with her before that she could rise to the occasion. She totally would. She's just, she's both a free-spirited, no-holds-barred, do-her-own-thing artist and that you want, the rebel, as it were. And she's also understands the New York Times. Like, I just, going into it, that was the feeling. And that was when we had a lot of fun. David Carthus was the photo editor on the project, and he produced the whole thing, which basically meant casting. So we worked doing the casting of the people of a certain age, which was its own challenge. And then it was a couple days in the studio in New York with Marilyn. And there was a risk. Who knows? Not only are we working with this artist, we're working with people who are semi-new. They're in lingerie. And on the other hand, it was a high-impact cover. And I got a kick out of it because when you look at the comments, there were people who loved it, loved it, and people who hated it. And that's an interesting place to be. How often do you do that with a magazine cover? So it got a strong response. That's the best. And that's the best, right? You know that from what you were just talking about. So if you can take a risk like that. But of course, you have to, especially at the New York Times, you have to do it in an intelligent way. With this subject, it seemed like we could take that kind of risk. If we're covering an extremely important of the moment political story, that's not a moment when you're going to go and do something artsy, highly creative, risky, right? Because there are certain other criteria we have to meet that the cover needs to accomplish. And journalistically, it goes into a different zone. But we're lucky enough that sometimes after years of doing this, I have a sense of where there's some latitude. And obviously working with Jake and Gail and the teams, is this one where we can do something fun? Every year we do a Voyages photo issue, usually in the fall. And this year, the theme for it was animals. And it was an idea that Amy Kellner, one of our picture editors, had. She had been pitching doing animals for years, basically. This was the year it got the green light. And this is always, for us, particularly exciting because the photo team gets to drive it to a large extent. And we started figuring out ideas along with story editors. And one of the ideas that Sam Anderson, one of the writers, pitched was the Icelandic ponies. They had these funny small horses in Iceland that people love. And so that was one of the five or six photo essays that we commissioned. And I was thinking right away, okay, if we're going to do animals, we have to do something different. So brainstorming with Amy, she said something like, maybe we should show them like they're like my little pony, rainbow pony. So I was like, yes. And then I thought of Gareth McConnell, brilliant Irish photographer who does these fabulous, his pictures have an otherness. They breathe and shimmer with something else. Like he's often doing still lives of flowers, his own personal work. They're magnificent. And there's a shimmer to it and the color comes out of darkness. Anyway, I could just imagine if we took him to those horses, he would do something magical. In other words, it's a way of saying his vision sure. sees the magical and transcendent in the world. And we lined it all up. Rory Walsh on our staff and Jessica Dimson found the best horses in Iceland, worked the access to that. And then we worked with them to black out the whole stable. So anyway, Gareth did brilliant pictures. And one of his photos was ultimately the cover, and it was this fabulous multicolored horse, slightly out of focus, coming out of darkness. That's when I think we're at our best, where it's unexpected because instead of just seeing the beautiful natural horse, we had a wonderful back and forth. I just felt like, hey, this is a chance we can transform it into something. So we love to do that if we can do it. It's interesting listening to you talk because one of the things that people have said about the magazine, and you in particular, is that you seem to challenge the boundary between photojournalism and fine art in a way that I'm not sure magazines have very often. I think that's right. It was something I picked up on early in my career, and I got very excited by that because it allows the magazine to look different, do something unexpected. Artists sometimes tap into something. In portraiture, it's an undercurrent of what somebody's psychological being is. They sometimes have that, what I th think of as a sixth sense, as do sometimes photojournalists. Like sometimes an artist has developed a universe of imagery that works for us 
And that's what's the point about it, just knowing that. And then sometimes you can do the reverse, where you take someone, pure documentary, and years ago, I had Paolo Pellegrini do the great performance portfolio, all documentary, behind the scenes with the actors. And that was just great because he would not normally be doing that. So he goes in there with a whole other frame of reference. The tricky thing is there's certain stories that works. Like you would not do that with a major conflict story, obviously, or a major issue-oriented story. Those are the moments when we would be talking about something entirely different where you have to work with seasoned pros who know how to navigate that kind of heart-wrenching, difficult, dangerous story and make quick decisions in the field, obviously have vision. It all starts with clearly somebody having the ability to compose the chaos of the world within the frame, the ability to see light because photography is always about light. I do have a question that builds right off of what you were just saying. And in fact, I was going to use Paolo as one of several examples. It's the old Susan Sontag question. There's work that he's done. I think in his case, it was particularly about immigrants and work Gary Knight did during the early stages of the Iraq war. And photos, when you saw them, they were beautiful. They looked renaissance to use an Adam Moss adverb there. And so much so that, do you know Jeff Dyer, the British writer? Yes, I met him, but I don't know him, no. So in his book, Seesaw, he actually has a little mini entry about conflict photography and under certain circumstances, its relationship with Renaissance painting. And he uses one of Gary Knight's photos that can also be very wrenching of a Marine battalion after one of the Marines has been killed in a mortar Mm -hmm. attack as an example of this and composition and lighting and tone. And so I'm curious about how you personally, as a director of photography, deal with that because you've got these photographers who are just absolutely brilliant and yet they are covering the horror of war, conflict, revolution. Now, of course, Ukraine invasion. Yep. Yep. It's the hardest part of the job. And honestly, it's harder as I get older. Somehow when I was younger and sending people into the field, of course, I worried just the risk of it. I don't actually, even after all these years of working with Paolo Pellegrini, 20 years, we've worked together on many stories, working with Lindsay Adario. She's extraordinary. She's the most courageous person imaginable. She's just unbelievable. I still don't quite understand that level of courage other than they're driven. They're both so driven as are many other great photographers. So if I can have the inner dialogue with myself that they have to do it, I would never call someone who's never gone to cover that kind of story and say, hey, would you go do this? I want to know somebody made that decision already. So Lindsay's going to do it anyway. Paolo's going to do it anyway. It's the title of her book. It's what I do. I can't quite fathom it even after all this time. And then all the visual decision-making that goes on as chaos is unfolding in front of them. When you speak about Renaissance-esque, there's a picture Lindsay made years ago in Afghanistan on assignment for us where she was on a patrol with the American soldiers and they were ambushed. And one of them, Sergeant Rugel, was killed. And the picture she made, his comrades, his friends who are just grief-stricken, it's just happened, are taking his body down the muddy slope there. And she somehow gets into position. It looks like a religious painting. And she doesn't think like that. Lindsay's not someone who's, I think I can fairly say this, looking at classical art constantly to let that inform her thinking. It just came naturally in the way I think a great visual person sees. She's more narrative storyteller, but it's a haunting picture that went to that next level. It became something else. And then Paolo, I'm not trying to compare, we're just talking about different approaches, overwhelmingly shoots in black and white. That right there is an abstraction. He has chosen that because black and white emphasizes emotion, eliminates unnecessary color. It gives him more of a chance to focus on composition. Composition becomes more important than light. Lindsay has consciously chosen in her career to photograph in color. And in her case, she doesn't want the abstraction. 
and I don't want to make sweeping statements for either of them, but I know them well enough. He wants to see all that reality that color gives you. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. But then there's also the issue for the director of photography about managing a certain tension between the aesthetics of a photo and the fact that the content of the photo is, in fact, conflict, death and casualty. That's got to be challenging. And it's uncomfortable to talk about it because with that kind of coverage, the content rules. But still, if you want to make a memorable picture, especially today, with the abundance of imagery out there, you have to make something that is so well seen, so well composed or understood, framed, that it touches some other nerve that stops people making a haunting image. The aesthetics do matter. That gets into a question that someone who has had the arc of your career, you joined the New York Times in the late 80s. And so you've done your job in an analog world, and now you're doing your job in a digital world. And it must be dramatically different as you try to conceptualize this visual solution to a story when we're living in this age of just overabundance of images. My God, you can't get away from them. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I feel like today it's become way more challenging. When I started out, you turned to magazines and papers and books for the photos. That was it. And it's just completely different. You know, people have seen hundreds and hundreds of pictures every day. So where is our place in that? Yeah. And I wish I had answers to some of that. I find it more and more challenging. And then there's also the reality that there's all sorts of creative work being posted on Instagram by non-professionals, like doing some just nifty stuff. It opened up creativity in a lot of people. They couldn't necessarily do a commissioned magazine assignment, but I see all sorts of just interesting creative material. And it's just a different medium also. And that's the other thing. So every year we do an annual The Lives They Lived issue. And it's the last issue of the year. And we do a series of stories about people who died that year. And it's almost always people of renown who are known in some way, sometimes ultra famous, sometimes not ultra famous, but known in their field or whatever. And this year, a decision was made by Jake to devote the whole issue to children killed by guns. And reason for that was there's been a shift within the past year or two that the highest number of child mortality is related to gun deaths. So we're in a terrible, we all know that, and there's been just horrendous school shootings. So as we set out to figure out the art for that and the photography, The photo editor working on it, Kristen Geisler, started calling all the families, which was a challenge unto itself because, of course, they were deeply grieving. So in some cases, she's talking to the mother or the aunt of different family members. And we normally in that issue come up with a nice idea, something to commission. The year before, we did the shoes of the people who died, and it was terrific. We had Eric Carl, the children's book illustrator's paint-spattered shoes. We had the boots that Alina Hutchins was wearing. Uh, the day she was shot on the movie set where she was shot inadvertently. And sometimes we've done the empty rooms left behind by the deceased. But I decided, talking with Gail and Kristen and Jake, everybody, that this was a moment we used vernacular photography that we just illustrated with the images that the family members themselves had, which would basically mean smartphone photography, TikTok videos. So Kristen started pulling in all that material. We were looking at it closely and it was very challenging. It was emotionally wrenching, as you can imagine. It was one of the most emotionally wrenching things we've done. The subject matter was so sad and we wanted to do right by these kids. It was emotionally wrenching for readers. And we knew that people are going to be devastated by it. So then that has another responsibility for us at the magazine that we discussed a lot. And then We were also working with tiny digital files. So you also need to figure out how will this work? Where is our cover image? And then we decided to go right into it. And Gail and Matt Curtis, who was designing the issue with her, decided to do these double truck images of the faces blown up. So we were 
looking at that very closely, trying to figure that out. And then the image that ultimately was on the cover, as soon as we saw that and it was backlit, everything about it was so pure. A professional wouldn't have shot the picture that way with the light flooding from behind. But what it did was it gave it just a spiritual look. And as soon as I saw that one in the cover, Matt, I felt there it is. And then, of course, we all came to that conclusion. But we were nervous. It was a very different type of image. But then Kristen was getting in these clips from the TikTok videos that she was looking at closely with the digital team. And when we published, the power of the short video clips eclipsed the power of the still photos. And you're not going to hear me say that often because I'm a diehard. I mean, I love video, but still photography has such a special place. And this was a case where just seeing the little bit of movement of the child had so much power. And then, of course, these pictures were all made for just the most personal, pure, intimate reasons. And the brief for them was to not focus on the death at all, but just focus on a day in the kids' lives, something in the kids' lives that was just about them alive and happy. And today, with the new medium that we have, most of our readers, the majority are seeing us on their phone. That was very powerful on the phone as well as in print. Let's go back to what you just said a minute ago. It's an interesting transition point because you were talking about your passion for the photograph. Where did that come from? What did you want to be when you were 12 years old? Did you want to be a photo editor? <laughs> I had no idea. I always liked to draw. So I was a kid that always liked doing art. And I had an older sister, a year older, and she loved to draw. And we would draw for hours on end. My parents would buy discarded rolls of wallpaper where it was buff on the back and they'd roll it out. So we had all that blank paper to keep drawing. Did you grow up in New Jersey? Because we did. Yes. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Where did you grow up in New Jersey? Up in Bergen County. I grew up in uh, Oradell and New Milford. I grew up in Bound Brook, but there's going to be another overlap because listening to your podcast, a pivotal moment for me was third grade, which I think was the case with you, right? Yes. It's, so it's a weird coincidence. In third grade, I had a teacher. I was in Catholic school at that point, Sister Mary William, a nun, and she taught art history. This was in a very strict, classic, traditional classroom. But once a week, she passed out black and white marble notebooks, and she would pass out small reproductions of paintings, famous paintings, classical artwork. And we would paste them in while she talked about what the symbolism was in the painting, what the artist might be thinking, what the expression on the person's face in the painting was. I fell in love with it. I just felt like I got it. I so got it. What was the it that you got? Just understanding, looking at the pictures. I can't explain it. I was like, wow, I get it. Whereas I'll be honest, in music class, I just didn't get it. Couldn't hear the different notes, but it was like I could see. The power of the visual, yeah. The visual. I could see what she was talking about when she mentioned an expression. I could see it in the face or something symbolizing something. It just kind of clicked. So throughout early schooling, I was always drawing, painting, taking art, and then at the end of high school, I had an interest also in politics because the Watergate hearings were on. So I went to Rutgers at Douglas College with the idea toward majoring in art or potentially shifting to politics. And then very quickly, I focused on art, but not photography. So my college studies were painting. I did lithography. I did a lot of printmaking, but never photography. And then when I got out of school, I realized very quickly after working for hours in the studio for several months. I don't like being alone all day. I love working with people. It's my nature. I wanted to yeah. work with the team. And a friend of mine told me about an opening and a photo agency it was called Sigma, as you know, one of the big photo yeah, news sure. agencies in that era, Sigma, Gamma, SEPA, Magnum. And they needed a librarian to file. Remember, this was the days of slides, negatives, prints. There were no digital images. So everything existed as a physical object. And they had 30 or 35 photographers all over the world that would send the work to the Paris Bureau where they would process it all. They had the lab there and then ship it to us in New York. And I got hired as a librarian. So I would just figure it out, stamp the slides, where to file them. And I graduated to doing photo editing for the New York Times Magazine when they would call and say, we're doing a story on Iran. And I would put together a package for them of slides and prints related to that subject and then Ultimately, when there was an opening, I applied, they knew about working with me because in those days, they used more existing photography and less commission. So yeah. they were often calling Sigma. 
And initially, I I was doing a lot of painting at night. And then the more I worked in the field, I just fell more and more in love with photography. And it made sense because there's something realer about photography. Like I often love when photography, as we were saying, goes to more abstract, playful place. But I do like real. And sometimes I laugh looking back when I was telling you about rolling out the wallpaper and my sister Maureen and I drawing. She would always want to draw the World's Fair. And I always wanted to draw shopping at the supermarket because I knew shopping at the supermarket, what it looked like. My mother would take us. I didn't like to draw what I saw. And I sometimes think that New York Times is the perfect place because in documentary, we're telling real stories. It all comes together right now. Everything you've accomplished, everything you are today, Kathy Ryan, you owe to a Catholic nun. <laughs> I know, right? It's funny how you, you get influenced, I know. Yeah. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's another podcast. But you are so obviously both passionate about photography and immersed in a world of the weekly, which is just so demanding. What do you do? When you're not working, do you go to photo shows? <laughs> I look at a lot of art, obviously photo shows, but just in the past month or two, the stuff that had a big impact on me was at the Guggenheim. There's an amazing double header right now. The Alex Katz exhibition of his paintings, which is a long lifetime of paintings, and you watch the trajectory, is fantastic. And so for me to go see that opens up my mind in terms of photography. And they paired it with a big show of Nick Cave's work, which is very sculptural. Yeah. So you got the minimalism of cats and the spareness of it. And then you've got the maximalism of Cave and the political underpinnings. He's taking on a whole other world of importance in what he's trying to say in his work. And then first show I raced to go see was the, the Big Hopper show at the Whitney, which of course is a crowd pleaser. He's over and over and over inspiring because what did he paint? He painted light. He painted the loneliness of humans navigating the world and photography again and again, even in what I do as a weekly magazine picture editor, is about light, how the photographers see light and have to think about people. And Aperture has had so many exhibitions in the past that were huge eye-openers and just deeply inspiring. The show that they did a couple years ago, Antoine Sargent curated, and there was a book, The New Black Vanguard. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant show. And walking through that, I immediately was introduced to the work of photographers I didn't know, as well as it reinforced my appreciation of others. And one of the people in that show, Ariel Bob Willis, I was just blown away, early 20s, brilliant work where she sees color like nobody else and she has the figure, the human figure move in space in a way that was unique and different. That's not easy to do. And even her styling of the pictures, she's since done two different special music issues for us. So sometimes it's directly related to my role as a photo editor at the magazine. Six years ago, I saw a show of Salt, a high school after school photography program and I went to their end of the year exhibition and saw amazing work by a photographer named Mamadi Dumbuya, at that point, maybe barely 20 years old. And we just fell in love with it. And he's been working with us since. And then when we decided to do the David Marchese talk column, we decided let's have one photographer, one vision. Now, sometimes it's illustrated because it's geographically not possible, but we've had Mamadi doing it since the start. And he has a very distinctive look, uniquely his. So going to exhibits and seeing that just constantly there's things to be discovered and then great legendary painters where it just reinforces the quality of the you're seeing like that's what i feel like you know how some people go to exercise i'm not too good on the exercise count other than the walking through museums <laughs> i go to exercise my brain so i constantly regret that i don't work out in a different way but i feel like i work out my eyeballs a lot we'll be right back Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. That's good enough. Now, I'm fine with that. I do want to pick up on your discussion about young artists, young photographers in a minute, but before we do, Selfishly, I have to get you to talk about Office Romance, your book, which 
I have and I love, and I know lots of other people who have it, and everybody who has it, they just love to hold it. Form factor, first of all, is great, and it inspires people to think about looking at the world around them, their house, the light around them, in a completely different way. And I'd love to know, at what point did you stop thinking about taking pictures of the new Times offices designed by Renzo Piano and posting them on Instagram and start thinking about it as a potential book? And did that change your picture taking when you started to think, oh, this could be a book now? That's a very good question. And yes, I'll tell you why. So here's, I started making the pictures just for pleasure. Literally, I just, I don't know. I saw that bolt of light on the stairs one day and you got the phone in your pocket, right? So it's right there, the camera's in your pocket. And I took it out and I made a picture and it just felt so good. And then I made another and I made another. And I was doing them at top speed in between, you know, magazine is a frantic kind of frenzied place. You know, we're constant deadlines. There's something deeply stopping for a few seconds. In the same way somebody might have gone to get a cup of coffee in a cafeteria, I would just stop, make some pictures, take one of my coworkers, colleagues with me, friends. And I don't know, it was like a moment of respite and almost meditative. And part of the reason why, and honestly, all the credit goes to Renzo Piano. So the building, the New York Times building, designed by Renzo Piano, has unbelievable light. Why does it have unbelievable light? It has clear glass windows. Almost no skyscrapers that get built today have clear glass windows. They all have to meet the environmental codes, the green glass, the gray glass. You see, it looks like what he calls eyeglasses. He didn't want to do sunglasses. He didn't want to do that. So he came up with the idea of the horizontal white ceramic rods that sheathe the whole building. And by doing that, he managed to meet the needs in terms of heat and light. The bars cut that down so that we're within architectural regulations. Well, it creates unbelievably cinematic light, like film noirish light. And it just kept calling to me. It was constantly calling out to me. It was literally like a siren's call. I'd see the light out of the corner of my eye and it was like, oh my God, I got to photograph that. So it's also been often just heartbreaking because for every time I've been able to do it, I've missed a bunch just due to what I do in my job. And then somebody introduced me to Instagram and I just was like, oh my God. So you start posting. When we first started posting, You'd be ecstatic if you got 50 followers. Oh my God, do you feel this? At first, it was just our friends. Like we were in that early. The whole thing seemed magical. And then people write nice comments. And that was helpful because I don't think I would have had the guts. I know that sounds weird for me to say that, but to put them out there. But then they were getting good feedback. And then I began to realize wait a minute, I've got a subject here. I just thought I'm going to call them hashtag office romance. I wasn't planning to do it necessarily as a series, but then it was becoming obvious. It's a newsworthy building in Times Square in New York City, greatest city in the world. It's the New York Times, greatest media company in the world. I'm lucky enough to work with all these amazing people I love who I could photograph all day long. And I can put that work out there without evading privacy. I still have issues about how many private photos people put out. I didn't want to be doing that. Everything I've ever posted, the subject is happy with. And it's not that it's a public place. The hardest thing, or let's say one of the most important things a photographer can do, find a subject that others aren't focusing on. If you embrace a subject that's photographed all the time, the bar gets higher. If you yeah. choose a subject that's a natural fit for photography and photographers for eons have gone down that road, you can choose to do it. And I mentioned Gareth McConnell earlier. He's doing something with flowers that feel fresh and new to me, and they're amazing. The bar gets higher. You have to come up with something different. There are certain subjects I don't understand why they're undercovered. One of them is work. When you think about it, most people end up retiring from their jobs, not counting photo people like us, theme people, but most people, and maybe not today now that everybody's got a phone, but even people with phones in their pocket, they don't have pictures of themselves at work. They don't. And I know a lot of the office romance photos I do are a moment to the side of work. They're not pure documentary. We've paused for a moment. The light is hitting the person. They're bathing in it. It it just makes me sad. My father was a carpenter and a construction worker. I have no pictures of him at work. Do you know what I'd give to see one picture of him on the job? Just to see it. And so I just liked the idea that it's 
more open territory. There's an extraordinary body of work on office life by Lars Tunborg, the great Swedish photographer who died about five or six years ago. Extraordinary. They're witty, they're funny, they're sad, they're poignant, they're everything. He touches a chord that works incredible, but not that many bodies of work in the office. I don't have to compete. There are far better photographers out there than me. Far better, of course. We know that. So at least I'm just doing something fun. Like Again, it's mostly thanks to the light. And of course, Manhattan has unbelievable light because we're between two rivers. So the right. light reflecting off the rivers, and that gets absorbed into the Times building. And so people forget that about Manhattan. They forget that, right? They forget just how it's clear and it's cold, hard, crisp light at certain times of the year. January, February, it's amazing. It was breaking my heart during the pandemic, besides all the sadness with the pandemic, that I couldn't be up in the building for a long time. It was very hard for me. But you asked how Office Romance got to be a book. At a certain point, I started probably like all photographers, printing them out, looking at them, thinking, oh, this would be a great book. And I wanted just to do a small book. And I showed him to Chris Boot, who was the director at Aperture at the time. And I had worked with him in the past on things. And I showed it and I asked if he'd be interested. And he said, yes, right then and there. And we did it quickly when it's a small, inexpensive book. And it was literally pure pleasure. There was no stress. Now, the hard part comes. <laughs> As all photographers know, the more you do this, the more you're raising a bar for yourself. And now I want to do a second book and I have enormous self-doubt. I have tried just myself. Nobody see this except my husband and my daughter and one other person in fits and starts. There have been certain periods where I've gotten phone core boards and I put the work up and I thought I had a book and then I backed off it. And then I'm not sure that's the way to do it. And then I struck the boards and for months, you know, my magazine work, I couldn't focus on it anyway, even on Saturdays and Sundays, because often it's seven days a week as a photo writer. Then I would start up. So anyway, I want to do office romance too. And I've got a lot of pictures. I just am far more afraid of it now and unable to, I can't explain it. I can't seem to decide when's the moment that I've landed in the right approach. I understand that. One of the things that Adam Moss and I talked about when we did our podcast was when he announced that he was going to retire, step down from New York Magazine, he said, look, I've been working full throttle. That's the phrase he used. I need to decompress. When I was talking to people who knew Adam, I said, well, how do you think he's decompressing? And everybody said the same thing. Well, he's painting very badly. Yeah. Ah. I said that to him and he said, oh, that's absolutely true. I'm a 10th rate painter. But he made the point that he doesn't aspire to the same level of excellence in painting that he felt he attained in magazine work. Okay. And as a result of that, he just loves the process of painting for its own sake. And I understand what you're saying because suddenly what was, think of it as an accidental project, right? Office yeah. Romance number one, it evolves organically. You're doing it for yourself. You're posting it on Instagram. You have conversations back and forth. The dialogue suddenly becomes a book. And now it's a book with a capital B. I know. Then it's something else. And a photo editor, and you're working with some of the best photographers in the I know. world. You better be good. I hear you. But again, it was one of the joys of iPhone photography. It removed some of that burden of it better be good. Do I want it to be good? Of course. I work hard. You'd be amazed how many frames I'll shoot of one thing, trying to get it exactly, precisely how I want it to look. I know what you mean. You're not running around with a Hasselblad. Yeah, but then... I don't know. It just, there was something so informal about it. I was never afraid putting them out there. Can't explain it. I just posted them. And if you like them, great. If you don't, it removes a little bit of that pressure. So I was able to organically go into it in a kind of fearless, this is just fun. And I love this building. I love the people I work with. And I'm grateful. At one point after I'd been doing Office Romance for quite a while, and even after the book was published, Jake said to me, we were undergoing a bit of a redesign. He said, I want to do something different on the contributors page. I'd like to have a portrait of the contributor each week, usually a writer, sometimes a photographer, sometimes an illustrator. And he said, I'd like you to do it in the office robot style. And first I was like, Jake, you're crazy because that's now an assignment. Like I just thought, oh, that's the craziest idea. <laughs> I was terrified of that. I was like, I don't know if I can rise to that occasion. But I took the challenge. And it was great. I loved it. I got to meet writers I might not meet in person otherwise. Although it also taught me as a photo editor, 
I understand the photographic process so much more now having done that. What happens between photographer and subject, the role of power, the photographer versus the subject, the importance of eye contact. Now that I do the other contributor photos, it opened up my mind and really taught me a couple things that have helped in the assigning. So I was grateful to Jake. It was a gigantic new challenge and trying to cram that in with everything I was doing. And I'm grateful now I have those pictures. That's the other thing in photography. If you put the energy in it, then you got the pictures. Have you gotten a call from Apple yet? What about? Well, if Steve Jobs or Johnny Ive were still there, they'd be on the phone with you right now saying, we got to figure out how to collaborate here. Well, you know, I got my good friend Rem Duplessis there and Stacy Baker, brilliant Stacy Baker, who was one of our photo editors, and Najib Al-Gabban, who was one of our great designers, is there, and Marvin Oriana, who worked as a photo editor at the magazine, is there. And- Taking a lot of your time, but I have to come back to one thing, which is that you've been talking a lot recently about young photographers yeah, photographer in particular. And yet, on the one hand, we live in this age where everybody has access to all sorts of different platforms and yep. can be inspired to pursue creative projects. And yet, it seems as if younger people coming up wanting to be journalists, writers, editors, photographers, videographers have a more daunting challenge than ever before. And so I'm curious if you are in front of young students at an art college who are there because they want to hear what you have to say, what advice do you give to younger people who want to pursue a career in photojournalism? What do you say to them? The first thing I would say is follow your heart. Follow what you think is important. Photojournalists have to be opinionated. They have to take a stand. There has to be something that they care deeply about. And you have to have the courage to go for it. Are you talking about subject matter or point of view or all of the above? Now I'm talking more about subject matter. So, for example, Stephanie Sinclair, brilliant photographer, early on started working for the magazine. She did incredible work on child marriage, and she was the first photojournalist, as far as I know, to ring the alarm bell that there's child marriage in so many places in the world, particularly Afghanistan. We're now going back 15 years, whatever. She cared so deeply about that subject that she committed her life to it. She obviously trained and developed her eye. She made remarkable pictures. So a young photographer needs to figure out what do, a photojournalist needs to figure out what do they care about? And then they have to go after it. If you're going to be a photojournalist, you need to actually start to develop something that's yours. And then that leads to other things. Like in the case of Stephanie, then after that, she started talking about genital cutting, that in many cultures in the world, that still happens. So she did an extraordinary photo essay for us on the Brides of Afghanistan. And then she went on and she did a photo essay on a cutting ceremony and then she proposed doing something on underage marriage with the Church of Latter-day Saints in the U.S. And that will take you through your career. So her deep empathy and concern for subjects affecting girls and women, particularly girls in the world, it's like you have to almost be a visual activist. And she actually became yeah. an activist. And then earlier this year, when the draft of the Dobbs versus Jackson decision was leaked in May, Jake wanted to do something related to that. And Jessica Dimpson the deputy director of photography in the magazine had the idea to do something on the Cleveland Clinic Maternal Health Clinic where pregnant women go who have risky pregnancies. And for years, doctors have had as one of their uh, things they can use in the treatment if there's risk is the possibility of ending the pregnancy, which then suddenly when the Supreme Court ruled was no longer the case. And I suggested we use Stephanie. And knowing this lifetime of commitment, she was able to walk into the room with those women under duress, their husbands, their doctor, maybe they've got news that's disturbing, like as they're making extremely personal, difficult decisions. She built that. I think for young photojournalists entering as your right to ask, a very difficult field, difficult to make a living and difficult to compete with the abundance of imagery out there. There are subjects that are undercovered, and if they can find one, if there's something they care about, that will fuel them. That will keep them driven in a way. It was sort of a cynical follow-up to that question. 
now that we're in 2023. And that's, is there such a thing as a career in photojournalism now and moving forward? And what does it look like? Oh, I think there's definitely a career because we're a visual society. So even though there's a lot of pictures, you still need someone to sort out what's unfolding out there to make smart, informative, focused pictures to tell you how to look at this. I think of people, Philip Montgomery, Mark Peterson, they've been at it for many years. They're still so impassioned that between jumping on a plane themselves for a self-driven assignment or for us or for the paper or for other magazines, there are stories that actually need to be told by people who can make that complicated image as they do. Latoya Ruby Frazier, same thing. She does her own artwork, but they're real documentary images. They're real documentary portraits. Her approach is a little bit of a different approach. You know, just because because everybody has a pencil doesn't mean they can write. Just because everyone's making phone photography doesn't mean they're making the kind of pictures that merit a million people looking at them and then coming away with an understanding that a great photographer can bring to subject matter. I have one question for you. Have you ever been bored in your job? <laughs> no, no, I've never been bored. No, there's never a day we're on board. That has not happened. Be sure to follow Kathy Ryan on Instagram. Her book, Office Romance, is sold out now at Aperture, but we hear talk there might be a volume two. Stay tuned. We have some exciting news. Print is Dead, Long Live Print has joined Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high quality independent podcasting, including Out There, a podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The race is called Infinitus, but in my head, I call it Infinitus, like an inflammation in your infinity gland. <laughs> That's journalist and runner Jordan Wurfsbrock. And in this episode, she explains to Out There host Willow Belden why not finishing a 500-mile race through the Green Mountains of Vermont turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to her. You can hear the whole story at outtherepodcast.com and learn more about Hub and Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>